Right, got a good group of kids tonight. Y'all have a great class. All right, Psalm 119. We're going to look tonight here at verses 17 to 24, which I just read. And I want you to think about it this way. Uh, one of the, the deepest longings of every human heart, and I think everybody will agree with this, one of the deepest things we long for is to belong somewhere. Everybody with me on that? Uh, we've all known the bitterness and the pain of feeling like we didn't belong in a place. Have you ever been there? You were out of place. Uh, we also know on the, on the opposite side the thrill of feeling like we did belong. Wow, these are my people. They understand me. I understand them. We are just like peas in a pod. How good is that feeling? Well, I want you to notice something about this section of David's great uh, love song for Scripture. He says in verse 19 something very interesting. I am a sojourner on the earth. What's a sojourner? A traveler, somebody who is not at home yet. They're on the way home. Maybe they're in a foreign place waiting to go back home, but they're, for whatever reason, finding themselves in a new place that doesn't belong to them and they don't belong to it. David is saying, I don't belong. Where don't you belong, David? What does it say? On earth? I mean, think about that. You, you maybe felt like you didn't belong at school or among a particular clique. David says, I don't belong on the planet. You would think, if David is expressing something like that, that the whole section would be full of depression, sadness, hopelessness, give up. And instead, what you find is David, who feels like he doesn't belong anywhere on planet Earth, yet is filled with determination and joy, and a sense of purpose. Let's talk about why that is, okay? If you'll look at your Bible, or at your, uh, well, you can look at your Bible too, but I want you to look especially at your uh, outline, your sermon outline. We're going to answer three questions about this. First of all, why do people like David, God's people, believers, why do we feel like we're sojourners on the earth? Why don't we belong? Second, how does God treat his sojourning people? And lastly, what happens when he treats us that way? Y'all ready? All right, first of all, let's think about why we feel like sojourners on the earth. We've already said a sojourner is somebody who is a temporary resident of a place. They may be there by choice, like an expatriate who moves to another country to take a job or something like that. Or they may be there by force, a refugee, somebody who's on the run from some danger. Either way, they're in a place that they feel like they do not belong. Being in a place like that makes everything harder. I had that experience when I went to Japan at the end of my college years. I went a couple times, stayed for a, a semester one time. And I came away thinking, you know, because I, I was thinking at the time, you got to know this, of being a missionary to Japan. So I was thinking about being a church planner like I, like I am, but in Japan. I went away from that thinking, you know, I could live in Japan. However, I need to know what it's like to be a pastor before I think about being a pastor in Japan. Do y'all want to guess why I concluded that? Took my life in a very different direction than I thought it was going to go when I concluded that. But why did I conclude that? Yeah, it, it's different. I mean, You're too tall. I, too tall. <laughs> yes. And, and actually, I, yeah, for the first time in my life, 
I didn't feel like the shortest person around, right? I felt very comfortable, comfortable. Yeah, there were many reasons why I felt like I didn't have the skills right then to do that. Because no matter how hard pastoring is, and listen, in the years since, I've learned it's hard. Harder than I thought at 19, 20 years old, right? Way harder than I thought at 19, 20. It would have been 10 times harder in a foreign place. We all know this, don't we? We all know this. When we're not at home somewhere, it multiplies the difficulty of the thing. And yet I want you to notice something about what David is saying there in verses 19 through 22. He's not saying, I'm a sojourner on earth simply because David finds himself as a missionary or as a refugee or as an expatriate who's taken a job in a foreign land. In fact, the chances are David had done none of those things. Um, there was one short period of his life where David lived outside of Israeli, Israeli or Israelite territory. Remember when that was? It, when he lived, he, he lived with the Philistines. He went over the border, just barely over the border, to hide from who? Saul, right? That was a short little time. And while he was there, he was treated fairly well because they feared David, so they treated him pretty well. And then as soon as he got the opportunity, he came right back. David is not simply describing that one short little window of his life. He's saying, like we said a minute ago, it's on the earth that I feel like I don't fit in. I feel like everything is 10 times harder for me because I am a believer in the midst of a world that does not believe. That's what he's talking about. If you don't believe me, put your finger in Psalm 119 and go to verse, uh, Psalm 32, just real quick. Take you to a couple places on tour here. Psalm 32, if you look at verse 12 of that psalm. Now, the reason I'm taking you here is because it says at the title, and it's not Psalm 32. Oh, 39, I'm sorry. There you go. Okay. I'm just testing y'all. Good job, Robert. You passed the test. Um, yeah, that's right. I didn't tell him that ahead of time. I didn't feed that. Psalm, yes, or, Psalm 39, verse 12. And I'm, I'm taking you here because look at the top of Psalm 39. It tells you it's written by David. Uh, Psalm 119 doesn't tell you that, although I've been saying the whole time David wrote it. Well, here's one of the reasons why all the old writers thought David wrote it is um, Psalm 119 has David's fingerprints all over it. He talks like David. Listen to what he says in verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. He's crying. Why? For I am a sojourner with you. Who is you? God. God, I am a sojourner with you. A guest like all my fathers. Who are his fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. We just spent a whole long time talking about all these folks in Genesis, right? Moses. That's who he's talking about. In what sense were they sojourners? In a literal sense. They, they walked around. They, they took their tents around everywhere they went. They were never at home. But they were also sojourners in a deeper sense. The book of Hebrews, in fact, tell, tells us about this, that they were seeking a better country. Hebrews 11, I love that. They were seeking a better country. Anybody want a better country? 
Yes. All of us do, right? We love our country, but we want a better country. One that fulfills the deepest longings of the human heart. Well, the fathers of old looked for that country, and the mothers of old looked for that country, and they set their face. And David says, I feel exactly like great-great-great-grandfather Abraham. He was not at home here because he was looking for something better than here. And I'm not at home here because I'm looking for something better than here. I'm the anointed future king of Israel, and I don't feel at home in Israel. I'm the anointed future king of Israel, and I don't feel at home in this earth. Because God has planted in my heart a longing for a better country. For something higher than just the mere circumstances of this life. If you look back at Psalm 119, he kind of unpacks that. The reason why he feels like a, like a sojourner in verses 20 uh, through 22. I mean, the first thing he says there is, my soul is consumed. I feel like I don't belong because my soul is consumed by a longing. Now look at your Bible. What is it that David's soul is consumed with longing for? God's rules. Now, now tell me, on a scale of 1 to 10, how weird is that in the world? 10 out of 10 weird level. Most people aren't walking around thinking, whew, i got a fire in my belly, and it's for God's law. I want to know more about what God tells me to do. And I want to do it. And David had that. God had put something inside of him that just couldn't be content with anything less than a life that harmonized with God's will and commandment. And so everybody else around him looked at him and thought, what a weird guy. What a weird guy. Even in Israel, he was weird. This is something I also remember for us, and I don't want to go too far into this, but think about Christendom. Have you ever heard of the phrase or the word Christendom? Christendom refers to that long period of Western history where most societies were very Christianized, right? And they call it Christendom because it wasn't just the church in a society, but the church seemed to influence society to such a degree that the whole place could be described as Christian. Well, I want us to think a little bit deeper about Christendom. Not saying everything about Christendom is bad by any means. There's some of that that was beautiful. But it wasn't everything that we might romanticize it to be. Because even in those periods, go read it, go read the history. Even in the times when most societies in the Western world were very Christian, Christian king, Christian this, Christian that, Christian everything, people who were really serious about God still felt this way. Because in the Christian society, yeah, everybody said they were a Christian, which is different than today. Many more people came to church, which is more than today. But many of them only just came, just showed up just said what they were supposed to say, just behaved like good boys and good girls. But they didn't have the fire in the belly. David had the fire in the belly, the fire in the heart, and it made him stick out even in Israel. God's people. Look at the second thing there in verse 21. You rebuke the insolent accursed ones who wander from your commandments. David feels out of place not only because he has a fire in his belly, but because he knows that God is opposed to everyone who doesn't have that fire in their belly. And that makes things awkward, doesn't it? When you realize you are among God's people, surrounded by people who are not interested in being a part of God's people. A people who just simply don't care that God's judgment is threatened. 
that God's standards are placed over their lives and they have to follow. I mean, David feels odd because he is a man who has escaped God's wrath living amongst the people who haven't yet woken up to the fact that the wrath is over them. Can you relate, by the way? Finally, verse 22, take away from me scorn and contempt. Scorn, contempt. What is scorn? Somebody tell me. Rebuke, derision, scoffing, people speaking about you as if you're worthless, nothing, trash. What is contempt? Same thing, just feelings. It's just the feelings. Like scorn is what is expressed, contempt is the feeling behind it. Hatred, dismissal. You don't belong here, get away. David was experiencing that from people. All of that together combined to create this sense in David that, man, this world is not my home. God must have made me for another world. God has put something in my heart that nothing on this earth can satisfy. And I look around me, and there's just not many people pursuing it. There's just not, just not that many people who have been given this kind of desire that God has given to me. Let me tell you, every one of God's people in any age are going to some degree feel that way. Everybody believe me? It might be greater at some times than it is at others. It might be greater for some people than it is for others. It, it, our circumstances vary, of course. But there's a common thread between us. We have a relationship with God and a direction for our lives that puts us at odds with the direction that most other folks have for their lives. And here we are, Christians, thinking that we can be Christians and still be popular. And still be cool and with it. Not so sure about that. Um, if King David couldn't be cool in Israel, then I don't think I can be cool anywhere. Because King David was a cool dude in many ways. He had so many great qualities. And even he felt like an oddball because of what God had put into his heart. Sometimes it's the opposite. Here we are as Christians. We know we're not going to be popular, but we take it almost as a badge of pride. And we shouldn't do that either. Our difference is not evidence of our superiority. Y'all hear me? The difference that Christians feel, what David, David's not boasting and saying, look at me, I'm such a great person. David does not take his difference as a sign of superiority over the other Israelites. David understands what makes him differ comes from God and came by grace, came as a gift. In fact, David wants other people to receive this gift too. And so you and I, as we navigate every day of our lives, as we think about um, this feeling of inner longing for the Lord and for his better country that he has destined us for, and it begins to help make, start making us feel like we're strangers in our own home, Let's don't go to pride, and let's don't go to that frustration that thinks we can still, if we just do it right, still be cool and accepted. Let's instead make Christianity weird again. Amen? That's what I'm talking about. Let's make Christianity weird again. In the right ways, not in the wrong ways. Not weird because we're just weird. We might be. But weird because we have a fire in the belly for God and his word. Y'all got me? That's the first thing. That's why Christians 
God's people have always felt like sojourners in the world. We're just different. Now, second, this is beautiful. How does God treat his sojourning people? Let me tell you, this is great. If you look at um, verses 17 and 18, there are two things David asks God to do. Two things. One in verse 17, one in verse 18. He's asking him because he expects that this is, in fact, what God will do for his people. That's why he's asking. What is the first thing he asks? Look at verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant. Deal bountifully. Do good, some translations say. Deal graciously, some other translations say. I mean, think about it. what comes to your mind when you hear the word bountiful. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that too. Thanksgiving, the holiday, cornucopia of all this good stuff that's just flowing out, the horn of plenty. That's the right image. Uh, the image here is that God is goodness itself. Did y'all hear that? God is goodness itself. He is what goodness is. All goodness in the world comes out of him like water from a fountain, like heat from the sun. And David is saying, direct your sunlight to me, to us, to your people. We're, we're alone here. We feel out of place. Turn your fountain towards us and pour out your grace. Look at it. Pour out your grace so that I may live, he says. Don't you know without God's bountiful dealing with you, you can't live? And I mean physically, we can't live without God's bounty. Uh, if God were for just one moment to remove his hand from your life or this world, it would be gone. That's how personal and intimate the care of God is for the whole creation. But David, I think in particular here, is speaking of the spiritual life, what we might call a life that's worthy of the name. Did you know you can be alive but not alive? You can be alive, but your life is not worth living. You can. David is saying, make, not only make me alive and keep me alive, make my life such a life that it's worth living, that it's satisfying, that, it's, that it meets the goal that you have set for me when you first made me. How do, how do you do that? You do that by opening up your bounty and pouring all your blessings, both physical and spiritual, into my life so that I may live and keep your word. It all comes back around to the word. I'm alive spiritually so that I may listen to God and obey him. Verse 18 tells us the second thing David asks for. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Now let me ask you, what does open my eyes as a request, what does that imply? Open my eyes. I can't see. Open my eyes. Now, why would someone, I mean, if your eyes are closed, do you ask someone, open my eyes? Do you do that? I'm sitting here with my eyes closed. I can't see. Open my eyes. Stacy, open my eyes. <laughs> That's weird, right? Uh, normally, you would just do what? Open your eyes. Just open them. David, come on. Your eyes, what are you doing? You don't have to ask God to open your eyes. Just open your eyes. David must mean something different. 
Why are David's eyes closed? Is it just a matter of his will? Is it just he's choosing to close them and he can just, just like that, boom, choose to open them at will, just boom, closed, open, closed, open? Right. Either he's blind or whatever that thing is he wants to see, which he tells us is the wondrous things that God has contained in his word. Either, either that is hidden or he is blind. He cannot open his eyes. He cannot see the thing he wants to see so much. And so he's pleading with God. God, don't just deal with me bountifully. Don't just work towards me in grace. Open my eyes so that I can see your work once you work. And what you have here actually is a beautiful picture of what the Bible contains from cover to cover. Um, let, me, let me explain what I mean. From Genesis to Revelation, all the Bible is is simply a telling in God's own words of how God has dealt bountifully with his people and how God opens his eyes, open the, opens the eyes of his people to see the bountiful dealing that he has dealt with them with. Because if he deals bountifully with us and we don't see it, what happens? We can't believe it. We can't participate in it. We can't give praise to God for it. We can't become a part of it. We stand separate from it. Right? Or if God were to open our eyes to see, but yet he didn't want to deal bountifully with us, what would happen? We would just have eyes wide open to see his judgment coming crashing down. God has masterfully done both. He has worked for our salvation and he's told us about it. Faith, the Bible says, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Why does it come by hearing? Because Jesus died and yet the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus to be believed must be announced and explained. If it's not announced and explained, how do you know about it? This is obvious, right? You can't know about something unless it's told to you, especially if it's something you weren't there to see or if it's the kind of thing you can't be there to see, which is always true of everything that God tells us about himself. We can't be there to see it. God is a spirit. We can't see God. God is invisible to us. He must tell us what he's like. He must tell us what he wants. He must tell us what he doesn't want in order for us to know it. And so David is saying, God, I'm a sojourner. I have this burning fire in my heart for your word. Here's what I want you to do. Deal with me in grace. Pour out the windows of, open the windows of heaven and pour out your goodness into my life, physically and spiritually. And then here's what I want you to do. Please, oh God, open my eyes so that I would see that wondrous explanation of your grace that you give us in the scripture so that I can participate in it. So I can revel in it. So I can get excited about it and tell my friends. So that I can have something to sing about. Wow. What a joy that is. I don't know if you're thinking about this in terms of how this might change the way that you think about God or relate to God. But if you're not, I want to kind of try to help you here, okay? So what this is saying, just in plain language, everyday language, here's what it's saying. If you want to participate in a relationship with God, the first thing you have to do is hear him. Hear him. A relationship with God cannot be invented out of your own brain. 
nor can it be invented out of the desires of your own heart. Pure and simple. Right? You can't feel your way to God, and you can't thank your way to God. He must come to you. And the scripture says he has in his word, the word written and the word made flesh, his son Jesus. He came to us. He showed us. We don't have to, you don't ever have to worry again, or you don't ever have to be in a position where you say, I don't know if X is true about God or not. I know you've been there. You've thought, man, I don't know if God loves me or if he doesn't. I don't know if God is loving or not. I don't know if God has control over the world. I, I don't know, does God exist? Is he there? Does he hear me? You might have those thoughts, but what I'm telling you is you don't have to have those thoughts because God has disclosed his own answer to all those questions. Open my eyes. You see why David prayed that? Open my eyes. I feel like a sojourner. Half the time, I'm running from my father-in-law, who's also the king. It's very complicated, right? I'm about to replace him. What a complicated life I live. I'm a young man. I don't know what I'm doing. God, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things out of your law. Because if I can understand what you say, those are some things I can build my life on, like the, the floorboards of a house, you know, like the subfloor of a house. I know those things are going to be true. I might not know anything else about the rest of it. I know this is true. Because you did it, and I know you did it because you told me you did it. And then you told me why you did it. And then you told me why and how and when you're going to do it again. I mean, that's what you have in the Bible, y'all. Do you see why people get excited about the Bible? <laughs> David is in love with the Bible. In love. Smitten with God's word. And I believe people today can get smitten with the word of God. And the way you get smitten is you understand my only access to God in this world where I feel like a sojourner is through knowing him in his own voice. Now, the criticism that's always gotten brought up about this, and, and people have always criticized Christianity about this point, and Judaism before it has always been criticized. Oh, well, okay. So the faith is based on a book, and the book was written a long time ago. And so what you're saying is religion is intellectual, and religion is studious, and you have to be this really studious person to get it. People have always made that accusation. But... Let me tell you, don't you know this about the Bible? Yes, there are many things in it that are hard to understand. I won't deny it. But the main point of the Bible has always been as easy to get as the lightning flashing across the sky is easy to see. Do you know how many people, and I'll count myself in this group, how many people became Christians when they were little, small children? Maybe you did. I did. I, I hadn't gone to college when I became a Christian. I hadn't even got out of third grade. I didn't even know how to write in cursive yet when I became a Christian. I was a mere babe in the ways of the intellect. 
And yet, I'll tell you, the Bible was like a flash of lightning. When I heard the Bible, I knew God is speaking there. God is speaking. He's speaking to me. It changed my life. In a, in a child way, in a childlike way, it changed my life. It has continued to change my life, and I hope and pray it's still changing my life. That's what Scripture does. It comes to us like a flash of lightning. A flash of lightning, you know, you can sit there and deny that the lightning has struck if you want, but if the lightning is striking, what good is it to deny it striking, right? I mean, it's, it's just there. It's obvious. I mean, you can go put yourself in a room with no windows and keep denying the lightning strikes. You can do it to your blue in the face. It doesn't change the lightning. It doesn't change the way it lights up the world. David had known this, and he only had a portion of the Bible, by the way, at this point. Only a portion of what we have. And yet he knew the lightning. And he was saying to God, God, all I want, all I want in my life is to know you as you have spoken and revealed yourself to me. David was no scholar. If he became a scholar, it was because he applied himself to the Bible. He wasn't one before. Remember what what it was before? Let me quiz you. What was David before he met the Lord? Or when he met the Lord? A shepherd. Okay, I mean, shepherds are great folks, but I don't know that you could say that they are intellectuals, typically, right? At least not in the way we would think about an intellectual. They don't have their PhD. And yet they had everything they needed to know the Lord their God through his word. Wow. In fact, sometimes, this is only sometimes true, but it is true more often than we want it to be. The more education you get, maybe the harder it is (laughs) to understand the lightning. Uh, And maybe that is true of everything in life, right? The more you know, the more you can, the more tendency you may have to pride. And the number one thing that blinds you to God's glory in the Bible is pride. You're not blinded by lack of intellectual capacity. You're blinded by pride. That's what blinds you. Lack of intellectual capacity, come to the Bible and you will receive. Church history is filled with folks who were shepherds and so forth. Never had an education in their life and yet became educated through the scriptures. So that's not the bar. The bar is pride. And so, you know, people have always criticized Christianity and Judaism for that, but Christianity and Judaism have always said, in the, in the words of Proverbs, Oh, come to me, O oh simple ones. Come to me, O oh simple ones, and listen. It's okay if you're a simple one. The Lord loves simple ones. Come unto me and hear, and the Lord will speak to you, and you will live, and you'll see wonderful things, and you'll keep his word. And you'll be better than a scholar. You'll be a son or daughter of God. Isn't that cool? All right, third thing. What happens when God treats his people this way? What happens when he showers them with blessing? 
and opens their eyes to see the treasures of Scripture? Well, here's what they have. They have always available to them a feast for the soul. All right, I'm going to give you a Lord of the Rings analogy. Y'all ready? It's been a while, so I feel like I've saved them up. And I'm due for one, so I'm going to give you one. Second book, also second movie, called The Two Towers. The Fellowship of the Ring, which is trying to destroy the Ring of Power, is breaking apart slowly because of all the difficulties. Left are only the dwarf, the man, the elf, and the wizard. So true story, right? This is based on a true story. Uh, that was a joke, yeah. That's all that's left, right? The, the two hobbits who actually have the ring are on their own. Well, these, this dwarf, this man, this elf, this wizard, know that coming is a battle. They're going to have to fight a battle to defend the, the realms of men, the Rohan and all that, from the evil people who are trying to attack everybody. Well, they know a battle's coming. What do they do? That night, the night before the battle, before they set out, they go into king. I, I know y'all might not know. It's okay. Uh, all right, just give me a moment, all right? Just give me a moment. This is my moment. Um, they go into the king's great hall. The king, the king of Rohan has this great hall. He's just been delivered from oppression, basically, honestly, demon possession, really, is what it was. And, and he comes out of demon Seriously, go watch the movie. You'll see what I'm talking about. He comes out of demon possession. He's, he's got his eyes back, his thoughts back, his heart back. He invites them into his great hall. He sets a feast. They eat, they drink, they sing, they talk, they laugh. You can kind of, if you watch the movie, you can see it in their eyes. They all look at each other laughing, knowing that the next day might be their dying day. And yet here they are feasting in the great hall. Now look down at your Bible and I want to show you that I'm not just trying, I'm not just trying to have a moment. Look at what he says in verse 23 and 24. Even though princes sit plotting against me. Verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. What's a prince? Ruler, powerful person. You don't want a ruler against you, right? Nobody does. Rulers sit plotting against me. They're sitting with counselors plotting how they can destroy me. And what am I doing? I'm making your testimonies my delight. As I do, as I meditate on your statutes and make your word my delight, God, they, your words, your testimonies become my counselors. The princes have themselves to take counsel together and to plot and to make up plans to destroy me. Here I am with God in the feast hall, plotting with the Lord how to worship how to obey, how to love, how to love and pray, maybe even for my enemies, how to seek God's justice in a world where justice doesn't seem to be forthcoming. This is what David must have been thinking. How could he ever get justice in his quarrel with Saul? How in the world is that ever going to get resolved? He just said, God, I put it in your court. And here I am. The princes may have their day in the sun. My next day may be my battle day. And yet tonight, I'm in the hall. And I've got your word. And I'm going to sit. I'm going to focus on it. I'm going to meditate on it. There's that word again. I'm going to meditate. 
And as I meditate, delight is going to grow in me. And as I delight, I'm going to find that I've got counselors too. And they're better than their counselors. The prince's counselors are nothing compared to the counselors of the Lord God Almighty. Do you hear, David? David has a feast hall to run to any time. So do you. So do you. We can run to it together, which is what we're doing right now. We can run to it apart, which is what we can do any day of our lives. Are you anxious? Are you worried? Are you afraid? Do you feel like you don't belong? Do you feel like this world is not your home? Do you feel discontented? Do you feel tempted and tried and tested beyond your abilities? Do you feel like tomorrow may be your dying day? You can go to the feast hall of the Lord God. Right where you are. How do you do that, you say? Well, meditate. You meditate on the word. Say, well, okay, what does that mean? Well, it's not, we've already said this in the series, it's not what the Eastern religions, for example, tell us it is. In their view, meditation is to empty the mind. And the reason why they want to empty the mind uh, in like Buddhism or Hinduism is because they believe the main thing that's wrong with people is all the clutter. And so if you take away the clutter and you're left with just the goodness inside, you'll be okay. Life will be bliss. See, Christianity has a completely opposite view of things. It doesn't say your problem is your clutter. It actually says something kind of interesting. It says your problem is you. Your solution is God. And so meditation in the Bible is not emptying but filling. It's taking out the old and putting in the new. It's filling your heart and mind with God's truth and God's word. Why would you do that? So that not only can you understand it. Again, this is not about becoming a scholar. This is about learning and thinking seriously about God's word so that your heart might be affected by it. That's what he says. I will meditate so that I delight. You know you're meditating when you delight when you get up. Uh, you, you may be doing a Bible study and get up and not delight. Maybe. Well, you haven't meditated. You may come hear a sermon and get up and not delight. Well, you, may, you probably didn't meditate. When you meditate, it moves you. Now, isn't it true? All the truths of God should move you. Right? There's something wrong, I mean, there's something wrong with me that when I hear about God, it doesn't move me at first. But it, but it doesn't sometimes. It just, I just hear it and I think, okay. Good. It takes time, serious consideration. That's what meditation is, thinking over. I mean, you might think about a hard piece of hard candy you put in your mouth, and instead of just right away, crunch, crunch, like kids do, they put in the Jolly Rancher, and it's just crunch, 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 and you think about all the dental bills that you have to pay. I like Jolly Ranchers, and I like them because they last, right? You don't have to crunch them right away and swallow them you're not eating it for nutrition 
right? No one ever ate a Jolly Rancher for nutrition. You eat it for savor, flavor, goodness. And so you let it sit, you let it dissolve slowly, and little flavor comes out over time. And that's what meditation is. You, you're not just thinking, okay, yep, God is good, amen. You're thinking, God is good. What does that mean? Well, that means every other thing. God is good. Not just he does good things, but he is good. That means every other thing that I can call good must be derivative of him. When I think that Jolly Rancher is good, it must be because God invented that stuff. Because if it's good, it must be from God, right? And if you don't like Jolly Ranchers, just forget that and put in whatever you do like. It doesn't matter. If it's good, it derives, right? Start thinking about, okay, well, what does that tell me about the cross? Oh, wow. Where did God show his goodness more than there? That day, that dark day. It was a dark day, you know, the cross. But it was also a day of shining light. Why? Because God was pouring out the goodness of his heart onto his people as Jesus' blood spilled out. He was addressing a problem that no one else could address at the cross. So the goodness of God's heart went out towards an unaddressable problem and he addressed it. Which is what good people do, right? Good good people see a problem and they address it. God did that at the cross. And you go on from there. You start thinking about all the things in the Bible that you know. You may at first not know anything hardly at all, but you take what you do know and you connect it back to God is good. And by the time you get done with that, you walk out thinking, man, I'm excited that God is good. I not only know that God is good, but I feel that God is good to me. And what that does is the truth of God then drops into your life in a way that it actually can affect a change. Right? If I told you, um, meet me after service outside and I'm going to give you a million dollars. How many of you would believe me? Okay, I'm looking. I know, I know it's bright in here. Okay, only Levi would meet me. That's what I thought. Nobody believes me. So I can expect if I said that, I would go out there and stand by the tree and wait. And none of you would come. Because none of you would believe If you really believed that I had a million dollars to give you, how many of you would come to the tree? Of course, we would all, I mean, you know, we'd all line up. You see what I mean? To to know something but not really believe it doesn't affect your action. To know it and believe it makes you do stuff different. And meditation is taking stuff you know and dropping it down to the belief level, dropping it down to the feeling level and the confidence level. And so David, even though he was surrounded by enemies and he felt like he was not at home in the world, every time he went into that feast hall and meditated on God's word, he left delighting in who God was and it made him strong against all his enemies. Divine meditation, one writer says, is a serious, solemn thinking and considering of the things of God to the end for the goal that we might understand how much they concern us, how much they relate to us, 
and that our hearts thereby may be raised to holy affections and resolutions that we might feel it and it might change the way that we live.